Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1984, the scholar and critic Alfred Kazin visited the Institute to talk about the long shadow Emerson cast over American and international literature. In this episode of The Vault, he discusses and defends his views of a writer who was critical to his sense of what American literature might embody. First of all, I'm delighted that you're joining us for lunch today. Those of us who heard him last night, heard him start on this procession of American writers, which he'll say a word, but he starts, he started his discussion last night talking about despicable Emerson. I was telling him about my great difficulties with, with Emerson's piety, and I had developed this firm image of Emerson by virtue of the fact that I spent my formative years in Emerson Hall, Alfred, and in, at Harvard. And in Emerson Hall, there is an absolutely composed Emerson sitting in a chair with his knees all burnished because people used to throw their coats up. And he looked so smug and self-satisfied it was deeply distressing. It was so interesting that here was Emerson's essays. You get the beginning of a procession, and in the next generation, the phenomenon of Hawthorne, Whitman, Melville, people who in many ways were concerned with matters which were so unbelievably demonic compared to, to Emerson's concern. And I was waiting for Alfred to talk a little bit more about the demonic that goes from the, the start with Emerson, who was, in a sense, the writer who's taken on the role almost as a priest. I was talking about Emerson as the founder of American writing, and I was making the point, which is very obvious, that uh, our literature as a national literature began in a religious revolution. And though Emerson had been a minister of the Unitarian Church, as had eight Emersons before him, successive generations, he was the first one who quit and in quitting, made it clear what Whitman said about him later on. The priest departs, the divine literatus comes. My theme is the divine literatus. Not only did I not derogate Emerson, but I was trying to make the point, I'm afraid these days that most people are bored by Emerson. I never have been. For me, he's always been very much what he was for his own generation, which shows you also how old I'm getting. But 
The fact is that the influence he had upon Thoreau, upon Whitman, and what may be news to some of us on Nietzsche, for example, is extraordinary. As late as the Second World War, I was very moved in Paris to hear Albert Camus say that he never gotten over his first reading of Emerson in French. And Nietzsche, who, despite his great gifts as a classical philologist, some reason did not read English, actually carried Emerson's works around with him from place to place on his nervous uh, journeys in Northern Italy looking mm -hmm. for help. I mean, Emerson, I sometimes think of him as the last American who saw God face to face. The problem about him is that he had this immense gift of conviction, which I don't think could have, could have been shared exactly by people who didn't have it. He took it for granted that everybody saw what he saw and knew what he knew as a matter of course. Fortunately, he was an extraordinary writer who was formed, as Lincoln was, and others were formed, but of course he was much more sophisticated than that. Uh, he was formed by a great many interesting writers, but the style itself very much approximates the triumph of what I would call the biblical style. And of course, at the same time, uh, Emerson had an amazing uh, effect upon his generation. Although William Bean Howell said, but as a young man, Emerson was sort of a folly figure. I mean, he was the sport of small people writing paragraphs in newspapers. It is a fact that after a while, Emerson caught on so well, so much, that he became um, a sacred figure. That was part of the trouble, which led, I think, to that unfortunate statue in Emerson Hall at Harvard. In any event, I can't forget that after delivering the Divinity School Address in 1838, Emerson was not invited back to Harvard for 20 years. The Divinity School Address, one of the many essays which Lowell and others said they had heard as if they were listening to trumpets, had the most extraordinary effect upon people. The students at Harvard Divinity School in 1838 invited him to speak to them one Sunday evening. And he began, in his usual lovely way, <coughs> speaking of the beauty of the summer and the, uh, the harvest season that was about to come. And then suddenly he launched into uh, this extraordinary idea of the cultus, uh, as being every free man's uh, native gift as such. The ideas that went to Bertrand Russell's free man's worship many years later, and which were put in a very despairing note, meaning that science has proved everything, but the free man still has to worship as he can. And Russell, that famous essay, of course, was being despairing. On the same grounds for Emerson was a pain of joy and hope. And then he became more and more provocative, almost deliberately, and uh, said one man was, was true to what is in you, and in the went on to speak that way of Jesus. Then he said, and finally a voice came down saying, I will kill you if you say he was a man, as an Emerson. The reports of the speech are that the students were besides themselves with wonder and amazement. The faculty or the Unitarians, uh, the Unitarian priesthood attending them, stood around with frowning faces. But uh, Emerson had actually, of course, made his separation from the church long before. But the fact is that it's typical of him, too, because with all of his terrible serenity, his terrible even temperedness, the sort of thing which made William James, late in life, when he first met him, say that the refined idiocy of his manner must be ex an affectation. Um, <laughs> Emerson was never known to deviate from that perfect Japanese oriental equipoise for a second. And people sometimes minded it. After all, Cambridge was to become the capital of the American nervous breakdown. <laughs> this is all based upon a book I'm publishing in May called An American Procession. And the title itself, which comes from Whitman's tribute to Emerson, is significant here. Whitman said in his old age, after speaking about his extraordinary uh, transparency, he said he was the actual beginner of the whole procession. He said, America in its future will know more vehement and more luxuriant writers but no one like this one, the actual beginning of a procession. And of course, 
in terms of his, his provocative gifts, you have the great letter to Whitman, 1955, which emphasized the power, the daring that he got out of Lisa Grass, which is amazing too, because Emerson, of course, recognized very quickly that one of the great underlying, very, uh, very close to skin motifs of Lisa Grass is the sexual side of it. And later on, Emerson begged Whitman to take out that stuff in the second and third editions of Leaves of Grass. In the first one, he, uh, in the famous letter, he praised him enormously. Yeah. Said. Well, let me conclude about this with the tribute that Thoreau paid him. You know, you know that Thoreau and Emerson had very ambiguous relations. First of all, Thoreau, with his famous independence, refused to take any kind of ordinary job in Cambridge. And Emerson was quite bourgeois in certain ways. The land that Thoreau occupied for Walden Pond was bought from Emerson or given to him. And he worked as a handyman for Emerson. And of course, it was part of his motif, part of his legend, to do things in unexpected ways. Emerson very quickly became the most famous citizen of Concord, whereas, of course, Thoreau, going back to his family's boarding house in Concord and having lived during that period in Walden Pond, took a great joy in being difficult. And the one thing Thoreau came to New York on the two times, he came because Emerson's brother, William, who was a lawyer or a judge in Staten Island, needed a tutor for his children. And Emerson sat down for a row, but Thoreau didn't like the place. Uh, we won't go into that. It was so obvious uh, an <laughs> yeah. uh, insight about New York. But uh, Thoreau walking Broadway and getting out of the same animal pleasure that Whitman got out of Broadway is impossible to imagine. Uh, he did say, Thoreau did say about Emerson, that he found in him the truths that were uh, exact and trustworthy as those he found in outward nature. And this is the point, I think, fundamentally. Emerson in this period, a period when romanticism was entirely a religious phenomenon, gave people a position feeling they had access to the truth. And that enabled um, his two most famous uh, American students, Whitman and Thoreau, to write what they did in many ways. Whitman said about Lisa Grass, I was simmering, simmering. Emerson brought me to a boil. <laughs> What did his family believe? What, what, what is that religious? The Unitarian movement uh, was um, in England and uh, especially in America under the leadership of the famous Channing was a revolt against Calvinism. And uh, it became very powerful at the beginning of the century. And of course, it became the official doctrine of the Harvard Divinity School. And one way or another, Unitarianism, which unfriendly critics call the icebox of Unitarianism, because uh, it had a certain glacial quality. You know, it was very self-righteous that way. One of the keys to Emerson's thought, one of the keys to Unitarianism, which of course was not only against the Trinity, but more and more unsure of any supernatural evidence, was, was Emerson's belief, this is in uh, the Venti School Address too, that he's, we really, he raised an answer for his own satisfaction, the question, well, given the fact that we can no longer depend upon the supernatural evidence, given the fact that miracles don't exist except poetically, how can we believe that Christianity is true and truth as a way of life? He said, it's because we all carry in ourselves the moral sentiment. And that was the foundation. The, the theatrical side is very important. Remember that Emerson, except for his first book, uh, Nature, and then except for his wonderful travel book, English Traits, one of the best books ever written by Europe by, uh, by an American, he very much depended uh, upon the whole theatrical resource of the lecture, even though he had to read these lectures and often got so bemused by his own writing, they sometimes lost his place. 
His daughter, Ellen, became so exasperated by his habit of not following the text that she sewed the pictures together once to make him follow them. But it still didn't help. Um, he, he sometimes, um, the, the accounts of Emerson lecturing are extraordinary. On the one hand, you see this rather solemn figure who apparently still wore a ministerial costume when he lectured. And this, oh, at the same time, he would just plunge ahead and read, you know, the time when there were no microphones, and people would sit there and obviously not understanding very much, not hearing very much, but sometimes rouse the most tremendous enthusiasm. And even when he lectured in California and other places, uh, one of the newspaper reviews of the period said, um, a great tribute was paid to the first cause, which is the way by this time transcendentalism had managed to put God down to the first cause. And the audience was aware that something like this, I don't have it exactly right, but the English language had never been handled before so well, that's all. How do you think that mom's poetic language? Where had that come? Well, first of all, I don't know. I mean, properly speaking, no one knows the, the resource behind any gifted writer's style. I believe myself that from 1830, when 32, when Emerson left the church, up to the 1920s, when the rise of the 20s, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Espat, Eliot made history by their incredible sense of style. But style was always the ruling factor with all these people. Because the greatest example of that in the middle of the century, later on, is Mark Twain. Uh, when you read Mark Twain, and you read the great passages in Huckleberry Finn, you can only say, where the hell did Mark Twain learn to write like that? Now, Mark Twain, of course, was subjected to the Bible. All Americans were, especially Presbyterians. He obviously didn't learn his, uh, his kind of style. It had to do, in Mark Twain's case, by listening but also the kind of jokes, the kind of retort, always makes, him th makes me think of the fastest draw in the West, but always giving it back, you see. A lot of it had to do with Mark Twain's need to defend himself in mining camps and newspaper offices and the rest of it by being just a bit smarter than the other chap, you see. The great virtue behind Emerson's style is what I call his gift of conviction. The great thing behind Mark Twain's style is his sassiness and his skepticism. After all, only Mark Twain would have said, to quote only one or two of his most famous wisecracks, the calm compass of a Christian pause with four aces. Uh, or um, at a time when there was a lot of anti-Semitism in America, people were constantly asking Mark Twain what he thought. He said, Jews are members of the human race. Worse than that, I cannot say it. Uh, and, uh, I'm not sure I know, Ruth, what this extraordinary gift of style is. I know that it's a foundation, whatever writing is. Emerson's was something quite fresh, that kind of... Complete, that's the point. Though it's, yeah. Exactly. Though it could not be less popular in its, um, in its sources, like Mark Twain's, and though it is in many ways essentially bookish. Well, my own explanation of it, uh, though um, perhaps it won't carry conviction on many people, is that it's based upon the same amazing sense of spiritual truth which you get at the beginning of the Christian era, and which you find, despite the Latinate style of the Christian father and others, these people had a new vision. Revolutionary periods, which Christianity was, and, and which America was, very beginning to have that. You see it in Jefferson. Uh, you see it in Emerson. Uh, you see it in a great many Americans, who in our time have, for some reason or other, learned not to write. It's the directness of it, and the absolute knife edge with which he's putting it to the audience that's so striking about it. And, of course, the imagery. And then, at the same time, it lay in what Lowell and other people thought of as this absolutely miraculous kind of power. Well, Nietzsche, who was a very great literary judge, said that Emerson was one of the four greatest prose stylists of the 19th century. Do you think Emerson's style had an influence on uh, subsequent major writers? 
eventually had a negative influence. That is, a great many writers in the time of the 20s now could not take Emerson seriously precisely because the style had seemed to came to seem to too bookish for the rest of them. I don't think, so, but Emerson's style as such influenced Whitman because they're so different. Because Whitman, like a great many contemporary writers, knew how to depend upon his own animal fat, as it were. Like he said, you remember, I don't know any sweeter fat than that which sticks to my bones. It had to do, in this case, with the feeling that he was the apostle, that he saw things for the first time through a glass clearly. That produces part of what's so puzzling about the procession. That if we take him as at the head of the procession, the procession moving along, the thing that's characteristic of so much of the writing that followed is that it's shot through with skepticism, with concern about even the nature of knowing, images in Melville at the very end of the Creek right at the top of the last, his pagan crew searching for the white whale as a Christian symbol in a way. And even, even I'm surprised in the case of Nietzsche, Nietzsche who proposed such a thoroughgoing perspectivalism with respect to how one knows, admiring a man who thought there was no problem of knowing at all, mm -hmm. directly in touch through a crystal. Well, that's a wonderful question, Jerry. The answer is, I think, it lies in the sacred value he gives to the individual originality as such. What Emerson said was that the individual is totally self-dependent, self-reliant, the famous phrase. Above all, he is a force, he's a power. In fact, when you think about our age of nervous psychologism, when character often becomes a problem, you have to realize for him, character was always, first of all, a force. And the more eccentric the force was, the more it was to be depended upon. Exactly the way in which Melville and Moby Dick finds every possible virtue of strength and power in eccentric, and even in mad people. Well, a good example, of course, has to do with Emerson's connection with Carlyle. Emerson went out to see Carlyle before Carlyle became famous. Carlyle became eventually a very, very bitter enemy of the United States. Carlyle was probably the most reactionary man in Europe yes. after Joseph de Mestre. He thought that the Reform Act was simply based upon giving not the workers the suffrage in England, but small property holders. And that fortunately, Carlyle was so provocative that he, uh, he got Whitman to answer him in um, Democratic Vista. But Carlyle adored Emerson, and Emerson adored Carlyle, because they both thought of themselves as being powerful force of nature, supermen. So he's sitting on the Himalayas, or looking down and everything else. Let's face it, Emerson is not a great Democrat with a small D. There is one case in this period of a great writer, and certainly in many ways a much more remarkable mind than Emerson himself, Herman Melville. Melville couldn't stand Emerson's optimism. He said about one lecture, imagine what stuff all this is for a man who has had to go around Cape Horn in a storm. Uh, he went on and on. And he especially uh, found uh, joy when uh, Emerson, who expected America to just abound into perfection because people like Emerson were around, said bitterly an explanation of the American failure, which was already apparent to Emerson in 1945. He said, the calamity is the masses. And Melville wrote bitterly, of course it is, you know, and that's the way he talks, you see. But, said Melville, I love all men who dive. See, what these people are always concerned with is the great, strong, individual, picturesque character. And of course, the lasting monument to what Emerson stood for is actually, I think, found not in Emerson's own works, but in Melville's creation of Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. The man who, as Melville says over and over again, is determined to go all the way out. When Melville wrote what we know or know of as the definitive, the definitive version of Moby Dick, he did so because he was living near Hawthorne. Entanglement. He was living in Pittsfield, seven miles away. Hawthorne had a tremendous effect upon him in every possible way. In one of the many exultant letters he wrote to Hawthorne, 
He's used phrases like, a man who goes through up to eternity, something like that, with nothing but his ego as a carpet bag, <laughs> and who defies the forces of right and wrong, heaven and hell, that's the kind. It's the enormous idea of personality and the supreme good in itself and by itself. And what is very striking in this connection is all there were people just as strong as these guys were after the Civil War, like Mark Twain or Henry Adams. They did not associate their character with the same absolute firmness of belief as the point. Alfred, doesn't it further complicate the question of style that in both Emerson and Whitman, they dramatically deny that what is produced is the thing itself, but rather the producer, the act of doing it? Our generation, our age, especially those among us who teach, are very conscious of words, but we're conscious of them retrospectively and we're conscious of them analytically. Whitman wrote a, prim a primer called American Primer about American words. Emerson, of course, was an incredible user of words and very much aware of what words were, the size and length and strength of them. But it's typical of their age, you see, that the use of words was to instill conviction. Above all, it was to change people's minds. Whereas our use of words, especially in the academy, is to make students aware of it as such. And that is a great difference involved here, you see. I mean, it would have shocked Whitman and others very deeply to think that one took words... Uh, shall we say, in a purely aesthetic sense, and such, even though they were much aware of it. There's an extraordinary essay, perhaps the most beautiful and the most mystical that Emerson ever wrote called The Poet, which is the greatest, um, in English, I think, the greatest dithyram in behalf of the romantic poet I've ever read. And it has to do with the fact that the poet eventually bears supernatural knowledge, that um, he's different from our prose world and all the rest. In Emerson's first book, Nature, he began by speaking of words and what he called fossil poetry. He thought that words by themselves were already fossil poetry. But again, each in those cases, the word in itself is a thing of tremendous power. And oddly enough, Emerson's tremendous elegance comes from a sense of power. But it has to do with the extraordinary idea that, well, it's what the great line of William Butler Yeats, belief makes the mind abundant. Now, obviously it's not true of all people with belief, but the people who had belief that age it has also to do with the tremendous revolutionary fervor behind Romanticism in America and in England, which did produce, after all, Keats and Blake, and did produce uh, Hazlitt, and did produce in this country uh, so many people, which had to do with the feeling, um, as Emerson put it, that man is coming back to consciousness. And that, uh, as Henry James Sr. put it, the kingdom of man is at hand. These people had a sense of themselves, which has not been seen in our age since uh, those deceiving first uh, moments in October 1917 in Russia, uh, about which uh, Mayakovsky and Khmatova and many other Russians wrote so brilliantly, which of course always makes you think of Wordsworth's great line, a bliss was not dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Well, there's no question that uh, it was very important for the country to be young, too. It's a very much part of this uh, contagion of enthusiasm. It seems to me, for example, that Emerson doesn't help us at all with the theater, or even with fiction. He had very negative feelings about prose fiction, Hawthorne's Marble Fawn and Mere Mush, and aesthetic poets like Poe being jingling and, and so on. Isn't it the case that the real influence is essentially this moral effect of preaching self-reliance, self-creativity? Well, you know, in the first place, it was not only Hawthorne he couldn't read. It was Dickens, it was Jane Austen, it was Scott. I mean, Emerson, the subject of fiction, is laughable. 
he, he couldn't read anything by Dickens very well. He thought it was um, trivial. He's very high-minded. And on poetry, um, he's terrible on Tennyson and others. But of course, like many men of genius, uh, he is uh, unnaturally specialized in one direction only. Oddly enough, he's wonderful on writers of epic in the past, when he says that Dante's style is the nearest to hands and feet we've ever seen. That's a very profound remark about Dante's style, which not many people would grasp. The fact is also, you see, that Emerson was not so much a bad critic of writing in his own time, he was totally indifferent to it. He really thought that he alone understood what literature was about. And one reason why Emerson's judgments on literature, I agree with you, seem so um, surprising in a man of his genius, is that he couldn't take the literature of his own period seriously. He didn't take Thoreau seriously. He said, you know, that uh, I recognize and throw all my own ideas all the time. Though Emerson would never have called himself an original philosopher in any way, since his own ideas came entirely out of Coleridge, Schelling, Plato, etc., etc. How shall I put it? We in our age, this is something which troubles me very much. We in our age constantly separate the scriptural, the aesthetic, the social. We don't realize that people like that in that time, there was no fundamental separation, at least not among the men who were men of genius. I was amazed to hear that up at Yale, uh, Emerson's great uh, virtue is that he was uh, an ancestor of Kenneth Burke. This surprised me. Um, I think it surprised Kenneth especially. But the point is that there is, um, he's not a critic in the sense in which people think of critics today. He's not a man like Burke who has employed his whole life thinking out certain, you know, aesthetic and question, moral questions. When, when Emerson is good, also he has the quality that all great critics have, which is that he makes, uh, he says, it's this way and not that way. And immediately in the journals and in the, in the others, see things right away. In English Straits, a remarkable book, he said, even though he couldn't read Dickens, and even though he's absurd about the Victorian age in many ways, he gets to the heart of English character, and he gets to the, to the nature of what made England the, the wonder of the world in the 19th century in a way that correlates very much with Dickens. See what I'm getting? In other words, he doesn't write something which is purely explanatory and aesthetic, what people do in our age. You see. We are all, understandably, under the domination of this separatism which Eliot, among other things, made so famous. When Paul Amamore, a now-forgotten conservative critic, first read T.S. Eliot, he couldn't believe his eyes, and he said uh, he didn't like his poetry, he didn't like his criticism. And he said, how can a man who writes poetry like this write criticism like that? And Eliot said, criticism describes the world as it is, poetry as it should be. Moore didn't write poetry, so he wouldn't have understood this in many ways. We also don't understand that the greatest critics have been the greatest creators. There's nothing as great in its way in criticism as Keats' letters. And they're very short comparatively. They're full of insight. But the greatest things written about literature are written by people who were producing works of art. And things which they themselves later on didn't understand any more than the rest of the public. Rilke said that works of art are of an infinite loneliness and with nothing so little to be reached as with criticism. But that would take our jobs away from us if we believe that. So one doesn't have to emphasize that too much. There is such a cult nowadays of criticism as method of criticism, as sobriety, that one forgets how many wonderful things are said in the spirit of Plato's uh, banquet, tossed off in the mood of drunkenness, you see, mm -hmm. and not in the spirit of wisdom as such. And Nietzsche, I think, appreciated this, and Nietzsche wrote extraordinary things without ever being a critic. The obvious irrelevance of Emerson uh, and Thoreau to the world we're living in Reagan's America is so obvious that there's only one question remaining, why do we keep on reading them? And why do eccentric professors of literature like myself 
get a glow out of reading them. It can't be, because I hear them to be unrealistic. I mean, I am aware of the absurdities involved here, but Mark Van Doren also had a very beautiful book about Hawthorne, and Hawthorne was just, was just as irrelevant to Reagan's America from that point of view. All writers are in that sense. So that the test uh, of, of so-called irrelevance here, it seems to me, well, let me just say one thing for the double down. I want to make this very clear. And speaking of the critics, romantic critics like Emerson, I was talking about the, about the insights of the artist, not of the clairvoyance of the pre-humans then. What you get in Emerson's judgments about Dante and about other things, the same sort of shorthand insight that you get in great writers over and over again, you see. And even when they're wrong, as the bucket was wrong in putting on Dostoevsky, or as uh, Tolstoy was wrong in putting down Shakespeare, etc., etc., you, you get a flash of insight, which sometimes is more important than anything else. What fascinates me about uh, the American procession is the fact that up to the end of the 20s, religion, even on the part of the most violent skeptics, atheists, was still a living issue. People uh, took it very seriously. One cannot forget that in a period when Mark Twain was obsessed by America's imperialist role in the Philippines, uh, was horrified by uh, Theodore Roosevelt, thought that John D. Rockefeller and others were absolute brigands, that he spent much of his time, but he didn't have the cuts to publish these things, parenting the Bible and trying to bring back Satan, not in the way in which Blake did, the man of heaven and hell, but to show that the Bible was something wrong and that as the mysterious stranger, a book which we've just gotten in its proper unedited form for the first time, the Mark Twain died 73 years ago, which is, uh, in its new, when its original form says, in fact, the human beings are hopeless, uh, that the moral sentiment uh, is its most ridiculous boast and the enemy of happiness and progress, and that Satan's in the nephew looking upon human beings with lordly condescension of pity as the only proper judge of human actions. So the question is, why do these people, at this period when America coming in great power, when people like William James or Mark Twain and others hated it and were fighting against what they felt to be the, 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 the spoiling of the American promise, why were they still preoccupied with religion? The answer is that a time would come, as in our own time, when it means very little to liberate people. Especially. If they're not village atheists, they're not skeptics, none of that anymore. The opium of the people, as Karl Marx called it, means nothing, even to liberate men, unless they are very special types, like certain French Catholics and others who, no, I'm talking about this literary question. I have to admit, when I read Emerson, I get something of the same thrill out of certain passages and Lincoln's school address and others that I get out of other scriptural books. But I wouldn't get that thrill if the man himself was not a master writer, the great gift of Stella. The reason for Emerson's influence was that he offered religious independence as a way of finding the truth. Remember that Thoreau quote, I found that Emerson proves, he said, he put in the plural, plural. That's right. But the fact is, to put it, I don't, I don't want to be banal about this, but obviously the creative artist must believe that his position is one of truth. In the Romantic era, Blake said, truth cannot be uttered so as to be understood and not be believed. An amazing statement. Yeah, which no one would subscribe to. No, no, but, yeah. but just amazing what, what no one today is capable of writing is one of it. Perhaps not altogether capable of understanding. But that's an extraordinary thing, you yes. see. And this is what Emerson gave people, the idea that they, they had, well, we would call it a position. We gave them a feeling that had a point of view. And the poignancy, of course, Emerson's career is that at a time which we cannot reclaim in this overgrown, now, I think, strangely mindless country in many ways, uh, 
He really believed that every man by himself could be assured of spiritual harmony and not recognize for a moment that this was a gift and that under the impact of science and technology, not to mention the Civil War, which really killed that kind of supernaturalism in America, that this was going to become more and more impossible, well, you see, in many ways. You know, contemporary writing is full of great talent. Right, that. We live in a period, too, in which writers who are sensitive to the period are charged up the way Mailer and Bellow and Uptight are about things happening. And, of course, the greatest writers of our time, like Solzhenitsyn and Beckett and Orwell, are directly almost the creatures of this displacement in historical yes. realm. Yeah. But they all have a problem, and Orwell put that problem at the center in 1984. He originally called the book The Last Man in Europe. The individual has become so teeny-weeny, he's become so small to himself, whether it's because of the psychologism that runs rampant in our age, or whether the psychologism is a result of some historical failures. The fact is that people, as people, do not feel strong in themselves, and the characters that come into contemporary fiction, and drama especially, are just flashes across our life as such, you see. Now, all was from 1984, and he wrote about this in his letters to Fred Warburg, his publisher, have to do with the durability of character. Think of Winston Smith, that victim of the ruthless totalitarian machine, a man who was imprisoned for making love, imprisoned for this and that. Think of such a man as the last man in Europe. But that was Orwell's idea, he understood it. You know, Orwell said something, this connection, which oddly enough Karl Marx has said earlier. He said, what's going wrong is that we no longer know absolute right absolute wrong. Then unfortunately we'll never know it so long as we are consumed by the struggle for economic justice. And Marx himself, of all people, who began as a romantic religious philosopher, the young Marx, mm -hmm. says uh, in the manuscripts of that period and everything else, it's a remarkable thing. He says, the world of commercial activity, the world of struggle, the struggle for existence, consumes us so much that we cannot get the real moral universe as a real problem. And all will add it without knowing perhaps what Marx had said earlier, that the only real question is the question of immortality. I remember my teacher, Mark Van Doren, uh, saying Columbia years ago, I never forgotten it, he said about Hawthorne, Hawthorne took it for granted that immortality exists. All great writers do, said Mark. But to believe that already shows on what side of the fence you must be, and they did that. And it's no accident that writers like Orwell and Solzhenitsyn and way and Beck and others are preoccupied with this question. I mean, what is the meaning of all the rest of it? Well, I mean, immortality, Professor Topton would say that it's all poetry in Emerson, but he really did believe in immortality without assigning it to a very definite place. There's nothing so amazing to our period as to read um, in Emerson and Thoreau their judgments of the power of the American state. Emerson speaks of the state, the American state, as a poor good beast that means friendly. But he said, if you molest me, I'll cut your throat. Emerson became a terrific fire eater during the Civil War. And it must have been he, uh, with other New England clergymen, who he went to see Lincoln with a company of clergymen, who to, to urge Lincoln to uh, emancipate the slaves before Lincoln felt it was properly time. The point is that one of his clergymen said to Lincoln that they had a call from God to visit him, to tell him that they had the message from God that slavery should be abolished right away. And Lincoln said, don't you think, Chapman, if he was talking to anybody, he would address me first. <laughs> <laughs>
This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at www.nyihumanities.org. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.